World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. This is Jerry Prokopovich. Heritage or hate? Few symbols in all American history are as controversial as the Blue Cross on a red field that first flew over the Army of Northern Virginia in 1861. What was its historical meaning? What meaning does it have today? What meaning should it have? We'll discuss these and other questions with John Kosky of the Museum of the Confederacy, author of The Confederate Battle Flag, America's Most Embattled Emblem, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office at East Carolina University, but not speaking on behalf of East Carolina University or in any way affiliated with it for purposes of this show. A legal disclaimer that I don't always remember to make, but it's important to do today, especially when we have a controversial topic like that of the Confederate battle flag. Our guest this morning is John Kosky of the Museum of the Confederacy who has written a recent book, The Confederate Battle Flag, America's Most Embattled Emblem. John, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Jerry. Thanks very much for the welcome. And I guess I should make the same disclaimer since I I am also coming from an office at the Museum of the Confederacy that uh, I'm not representing the museum's opinions on these subjects either, but just my own as an historian. And, And as historians, that's something we frequently do. If if our engineers are there, I'm, it's hard for me to hear you. We're uh, right. a little faint. Get, get the volume up a little bit there. That would be great. Um, well, John, tell tell me about your interest uh, in this subject. Uh, your background in Civil War studies. What what brought you to this? To Civil War studies or to the flag? Well, let's start with the, the war itself. Okay. Well, like a lot of us, um, grade school. I think in my case, seventh grade. I, I'm, I 
was born in California but moved to Virginia at age three, I think. So all my schooling from first grade on through graduate school was in Virginia. And we had, as many Virginia students did, the uh, textbook uh, Virginia History by Francis Butler Simpkins. And uh, a friend and I were asked to do a, a project on the Valley Campaign of 1862, and that was the hook uh, at age 12 or 13, whatever it was, and pursued it. I was a typical Civil War bore, Civil War nerd through through high school and college and kind of left it for a while in graduate school and found myself back here at the Museum of the Confederacy in 1988, and it was kind of like falling off a log as if I had uh, never stopped reading and, and thinking about it in the, in the intervening years. I'd worked for a while at the National Park Service at both Fredericksburg while I was in school there and uh, at Antietam and did my uh, did a lot of writing when I was in college. So uh, the, the Civil War, a lifelong interest, as as you point out, as it is for many of us uh, on the show or listening to the show. That, that's frequently the case. A lot of us hooked early. In my case, I'm just I was not really cognizant during the Civil War centennial, but the the books and productions, uh, particularly those by uh, Bruce Catton, uh, that come out came out of the Civil War centennial were what. Uh, Kind of nurtured me from the the, the textbook uh, to the to the research interest of my adulthood. Uh, and I'll bet then you remember those maps in the the Bruce Catton American Heritage volume. Oh boy, the, uh, the 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 topographical map of the little soldiers marching through. Those are the ones. I, yeah. I, I would guess if we took a poll, uh, two thirds of the people I talked to on the show uh, have a, extremely vivid memories of those maps, triggering an early interest. Indeed, we, we at the museum, when um, uh, people ask about uh, when you have new staff members or anybody else uh, just getting we will tell them that the book to start with is the golden book of the Civil War. I mean, we tell them, we make sure that they know we're not patronizing them, that it's just a, it's derived from the, the Cat and American Heritage book, and it's uh, very accessible and, and, and still very good. It, it really is. It, it's uh, someone Someday we'll write a, a history of how influential those maps were in getting a whole generation of I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I've, I've talked to very few people who have a lifelong interest that, uh, in which that wasn't in some way influential. Now, from there, you you end up at the Museum of the Confederacy, and uh, certainly the flags of the Confederacy are going to be something you're, you're going to encounter there. Uh, does that bring us to your interest in the current book? It does to some degree. I, I started writing some labels for flag exhibits. Uh, we have the world's largest collection of Confederate flags, roughly one-third, I believe, of all known Confederate flags are here, uh, 550 wartime flags. and We have a flag curator, uh, the only such specialized curator we have to take care of the collection to help to conserve them and display them, and I helped her with some label writing. But the real the genesis of this book, uh, and the questions that you posed very, very well at the beginning, the voiceover at the beginning, uh, were the ones that we were, as a museum, having to ask in 1992-93 at the, as the flag flaps, as headline writers know them, were really becoming more and more frequent, and we were having questions posed to us by news media about the Confederate side of the uh, Confederate opinion, so so-called on, um, on the flag battles, uh, the efforts to particularly in the states of Georgia and Alabama at that time, as well as a lot of local events and uh, requests that the that flags that were on public property cease being flown or uh, publicly sponsored flag displays. We were getting so many questions about it that we decided as a history museum to explore the background. We decided that the greatest service we could render, rather than simply throwing yet more 
opinions into the cacophony of opinions is to present historical background and research and perspective. So we posed a lot of the same questions you did about the meaning of the flag. How did it come to have so many diverse conflicting meetings? How, what are the historical origins of those? Why is it that so many different people have so many different conflicting opinions about the flag? So we did background research about the flag both during the war and in the 130 years then since the war and uh, presented that in the form of an exhibit called Embattled Emblem, which opened in the spring of 93, was here for two years, and then went down to South Carolina, which was then experiencing a very bitter flag controversy. And it was as a result of that research for the exhibit that I began on my own time uh, to research the book. Well, let's let's trace this uh, uh, lengthy and, and important history of the, the flag. I'd, I'd like to do as you do with your book and, and start right at the beginning. Sure. Uh, the, the, almost the first point you make is one that uh, comes up when certainly when my students ask about the flag and whether students should be allowed to wear T-shirts with the flag and so forth. Uh, the first point is that when you say the Confederate flag, you probably mean not necessarily the actual flag of the Confederacy. Right. The, uh, and this is a problem, of course, in writing a book about the subject, is that the, there is so much complexity about what we mean by Confederate flag, but it, uh, for practical purposes, I can't go describing uh, and using technical terms and long terms to describe which flag I mean. So I call it the Confederate flag after introducing what I mean, which is the, the as you said, the, uh, the the red flag with the blue cross, the saltier or cross of St. Andrew on it. And in my case, I refer to that as the Confederate battle flag, uh, or the Confederate flag as a shorthand. And if I refer to any of the other patterns of the national flags of the Confederacy, I will do so explicitly. But uh, when I say Confederate flag or Confederate battle flag, I refer to the blue cross on the red field, regardless of whether it's square or oblong or rectangular. But as you said, that never was in reality, that is in a de jure kind of way, the flag of the Confederacy. It was never on its own the national flag of the Confederacy, though it was the major element of the Confederate national flag for the last two years of the war. And in fact, even though the United Confederate Veterans later declared it as the Confederate battle flag, that, tr- that too, is uh, is technically incorrect. There were many, many, many Confederate battle flags, as students of the war know, a lot of different patterns. Um, but it it originated... Well, let's, let's go back and, and trace. What was the first Confederate national flag? So it would make things even worse for those who, who aren't students of the flag. The first national flag of the Confederacy was known as the Stars and Bars, which is not, of course, the flag that we've just been describing. The Stars and Bars is the one that has two horizontal red bars, one on top, one in the bottom, sandwiching an equally equal width white bar. And in the canton, in the upper blue uh, square in the upper left corner of the flag, in the same position as the similar canton of the U.S. flag, is a circle of stars uh, representing this number of states of the Confederacy. That was the first national flag of the Confederacy. I noticed last night, to my horror, that I uh, failed to 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 describe in the book that, or to clarify that, though it was introduced by the flag committee and essentially passed, it was they didn't cross the T's and dot their eyes. There was no evidence that they ever took a vote on it in the Confederate Congress to officially approve it. But for all intents and purposes, approved in March of 1861 as the first national flag of the Confederacy, uh, it resembled very closely and very deliberately the general appearance 
of the stars and stripes. And very explicitly, because the Southerners who were in favor of that pattern did not forsake the flag of the old Union. They loved the old Union as it was before the election of Abraham Lincoln and did not want to surrender the symbols of the old nation. So at first, and you can see sort of a weaning process occurring here, uh, the Confederate national flag deliberately resembled the stars and stripes. Now that is going to create an obvious problem if you bring that flag into battle where the other side is carrying the stars and stripes. Precisely, and that's why there was a, uh, they're beginning as the, as the military operations began, uh, armies not only in Virginia, where the Army of Northern Virginia pattern battle flag is uh, began, but uh, throughout the Confederacy, uh, it created massive confusion on the battlefield. It defeats the purpose of having a battle flag, that is to distinguish friendly troops from the enemy and allow the uh, commanders to see and guide their troops on the battlefield. So generals throughout the Confederacy looked for, found alternative pattern flags, hence the birth of some of the more distinctive ones, such as the Hardy pattern battle flag used out in the West. You're Army of the Ohio guys who were fighting against uh, Confederates that weren't carrying the Blue Cross on the red field, but um, uh, carrying a big blue flag with a white or silver disc in the middle of it. That was adopted in the West by, uh, by some troops carried throughout the war by Claiborne's men as a battle flag. But in Virginia, uh, Generals Beauregard and Johnston, uh, Joe Johnston, turned uh, to the, the, pat, the pattern of this so familiar to us as the alternative battle flag to be used only in battle. Did Confederate troops also carry state flags into battle on occasion? Early in the war they did, and there's uh, scattered evidence that some did throughout the war. But when, when the companies that comprised regiments marched off the battle, they had very elaborate silk flags, oftentimes silk painted with the state seals and other motifs on them. Uh, Flag historians are still trying to pinpoint exactly when, but sometime in the spring of 1862, there were orders given to replace those flags, to send them home, to cease using them. But you will find scattered reports, such as in George Stewart's very famous book on Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, yeah. about the capture of state flags at Gettysburg. The capture records don't really back that up, but uh, I don't think it's ever fair to say never uh, in anything relating to this subject, but the... Um, uh, state flags were, for the most part, retired uh, after the first year or so of the war. Now, in battle, these flags played an important role. Very much. They they were what uh, they they helped the commanders to align their troops, uh, to guide their their movements, and of course they were uh, very important for the continuing legacy and the definition of the meaning of the flag. They not only had a practical purpose; they had an emotional purpose. They were the the uh, the the, the cotton and wool is uh, embodiment of the esprit de corps, of the esprit de corps of the unit. They were extremely important for morale. They they symbolized the spirit of the men themselves. And the the stories that we that are that seem almost too apocryphal to be real are real of men uh, who fought and died for those flags. One man grabbing the pole and the flag from the man who was blown up before the other man's eyes. It, incredible acts of bravery as men uh, took up this flag, not only for the practical reason of being able to guide the troops, but also because of the emotional attachment. And this consecrated these flags for the men and for their families. That's why the Confederate nation embraced this flag. The, the, the people on, on the home front embraced it as a consecrated symbol of the men who fought and died for on their behalf. 
So the, it, there's there's just nothing more central to the identity of the soldiers than, than their flag. It's not just a representation of the nation, but it's, it's an embodiment of the, the unit itself. Uh, it's a landmark on the field. It's, it's an absolutely critical piece of, of who they are as soldiers. Very much so. And, and Richard Rollins, the late Richard Rollins, who did a very good book uh, called uh, The Damn Red Flags of the Rebellion, the Flags at Gettysburg, a study of the flags at Gettysburg, uh, did a wonderful chapter about the, uh, the ideological meaning of the flag for the soldiers. So for those people in the modern flag debates who say that the Confederate soldiers defined the flag themselves, and that's all that we need to know, I, I obviously do not agree with that latter part. But uh, Rich's uh, chapter is one of the best statements of how it was that the soldiers defined the flag. Well, the definition of the flag uh, begins in the war, but obviously it's going to continue on well into the 20th century and up to today. We're going to take a short break and come right back and talk about the post-war career of the Confederate flag when we talk with John Kosky here on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you. 